This episode is supported by Vegamore. I'm a month and a half into my Vegamore journey. I don't know if you've ever had a garden and planted seeds, but when that first little growth breaks ground, it's exciting. And on my very head, I can see some new growth in the areas that I've noticed hair thinning before. And it's exciting to see those little babies coming in. I use the shampoo, conditioner, and the grow serum, which have a lovely, mellow, warm citrus smell. I've been consistently using this, and it makes my hair feel soft and full. And it's really important to me that I use safe and conscious products whenever I can. And Vegamore is 100% cruelty-free and are never formulated with potentially harmful chemicals like parabens or hormones. Elevate your hair wellness routine this year with Vegamore. For a limited time, get 20% off your first subscription order by going to vegamore.com slash mind and use code mind at checkout. That's V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R.com slash mind, code mind to save 20% on your first order. V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R.com slash mind, code mind. Welcome to Mom and Mind, where we dive into all aspects of perinatal mental health and wellness related to pregnancy, birth, loss, postpartum, and new parenthood. It's so much more than postpartum depression. We raise the volume on all of these topics in the hopes that someday everyone will have the support and info that they deserve before they need it. Please note this podcast is not a replacement for treatment by a professional or professional training. Welcome to Mom and Mind. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. As some of you may know by now that the journey into motherhood can be very fraught with a lot of complications, sometimes things that we might be able to expect, and then sometimes things we just don't expect. For a lot of people who have had difficult relationships with one or both parents, for a lot of people who have had difficult experiences growing up with one or both of their parents, the transition into parenthood can bring up a lot of those past experiences. And sometimes the way that it affects us as it plays out is surprising or sometimes even shocking. For a lot of people, very difficult. Our guest today, Jamie Martin, is going to be sharing her personal story of a very difficult childhood with her own mother who had a mental illness. She's going to share some of the dynamics that played out for her and her mother and how that shaped and impacted her own transition into parenthood. Jamie does talk about some sensitive topics today specifically of suicide. So for those of you who are feeling like you might not be able to listen in right now, just know that we'll be here when you're ready, as the topic of suicide can be very sensitive for some listeners. And since Jamie is a therapist specializing in perinatal mental health, she's really able to drop in some insight into her early experience and how that might have impacted her. Jamie lives in San, Jamie lives in San Diego with her husband and sensitive four-year-old son. After a career devoted to children and adults with emotional needs, she changed gears after the birth of her son. She found herself without support or knowledge of what she was experiencing. Once she learned about postpartum depression and anxiety, she became an advocate to women and served as a volunteer for PSI, and last year became perinatal mental health certified. She works with mothers in her private practice called Womanhood Counseling and supports women in their growth and discovery. Let's welcome Jamie. Welcome, Jamie. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for volunteering and being willing to come on and talk about your story. I think a lot of people uh, deal with 
very difficult transitions into parenthood, obviously, but don't know that their own past, how their own past is going to be showing up during this transition. So uh, you bringing this to light and talking to us about to and talking to us about your experience is extremely helpful. So thank you for coming on. Yeah, no problem. I feel like now is a good time to have this topic because it seems to be happening a lot. Absolutely. Absolutely. So please do start wherever you'd like uh, with your story. Yeah, I think um, my story begins with my mom's because I think a lot of times, even with working with my clients, it's kind of generational. Her mom, so my mom was raised by a single mom, which back in the day is, I'm sure you can guess, was kind of very taboo. Mm -hmm. And she had three kids, or I'm sorry, four kids, all from different dads. And my mom really wanted to have a strong connection with her own mom, like the sense of attachment. And I'm sure her mom with four kids trying to feed, clothes, support them on a single mom salary was really, really difficult. And as a result, she just probably wasn't the mom that she could be. And along with that, my mom described her childhood as, you know, obviously there was an attachment there, but there was also a lot of physical and emotional abuse. I think my mom really obviously struggled with that. And at the age of 17, something in her junior year of high school, she discontinued her education to help financially support the family. Mm -hmm. And I think more than that, she really wanted her mom to kind of acknowledge her and see her. And that didn't happen. So a few years after high school, my mom got pregnant with her first child, my brother, And he, I think my mom, you know, like all most mothers, you're just so in love with your child. You are just, you know, overwhelmed with love and emotion. But of course, that love isn't as reciprocal as it's not going to float you in the way that you want it to. It's not going to fill your cup. So I think my mom also went to her mom and said, well, you know, look, I'm this really amazing mom. Like, look at me now. I'm, I'm capable of love and attachment and all this great stuff. But her mom still didn't acknowledge her and see her. And I think that's where my mom just kind of gave up. She wasn't going to get the love and, and need that she needed from her mom, this attachment. And, and as we know, as professionals in this field, working with postpartum, when you have your own kid, there's, there's something that really comes about where you need your mom, where that attachment, love, and you just yearn to have your mom to be there. And I think that really hit my mom even harder. And Child Protective Services was involved. I believe my brother was taken away, but my mom was able to be successful in her case plan. They were united, but my mom struggled with substance abuse and mental health issues and It was just a mess. And eight years later, she had me. And at some point, my brother got taken away for physical abuse. I remained in the home. There was a lot of different stepfathers and boyfriends. My mom just didn't really want to parent at that time. There was no attachment on her half for me. Mm. And it felt really, really hard. And of course, I was living the life that my mom had had Mm -hmm. with her mom, where I really wanted my mom to to acknowledge me and see me, to attach to me. There was just like this longing there. And my, my mom just, she was just incapable of it. There was just, she just wasn't able to do that because of her mental health. And I don't know if she had borderline personality disorder or she was bipolar. There was a lot of episodes of mania and severe, severe depression. 
There was lots of in and outs with Child Protective Services, but I was never removed from the home. She, I think I want to say around, there was like, I want to say early, early adolescence, she started having a lot of suicidal ideations, a lot of threats about suicide, but nothing came about it. And then older adolescence, there was more follow through mm. where I would witness it and would try to witness your mom do, uh, do following through on suicide attempts. Yes. Wow. I would be there. It is. It was really intense. I was like the adult or not the adult, but acting as adults where I would witness it and then almost save her. There was never 911 calls because there was a lot of secrecy in homes like that. Oh, gosh. Right. Were you, were uh, you uh, kind of told either explicitly or, or not that, that you weren't allowed to or that you shouldn't reach out for help? Kind of. There was, when the CPS was around, there was a lot of like, we don't tell CPS is bad. So that was kind of engraved authority figures. For sure. Okay. And, you know, you'll get taken away or mom will get taken away. Mm -hmm. So So by this point, CPS had been involved multiple times um, in your home. mm -hmm. Right. And it's, it's you, uh, sorry, your older brother and you and are there any other kids around by the time you're an adolescent no and my brother got permanently removed oh okay so it was just me my mom and my stepdad Mm -hmm. and my stepdad was a school teacher in a small town so he was very um like idolized almost Mm -hmm. because you know like firemen and school teachers and lawyers it's things that you want to grow up to be and we we didn't want to shame him or and he he was an alcoholic too, but a functioning one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it never really crossed my mind to call an ambulance or police for my mom because that would bring shame and highlight the dysfunction of the family. So I would just take care of her. Um, you find her, save her, kind of nurse her back to health um, to some extent? Yeah, and we would never really talk about it. Mm. To some extent, I would nurse her back to health, yeah, because it would just continue. Mm -hmm. This episode is supported by Ritual. I am by nature and nurture a bit skeptical. I have to see for myself if something works or if it's helpful before I just believe it whole cloth. And I'm open to trying things out to see for myself. And that includes finding strategies for my wellness. I have a historically low vitamin D, so it's important for me to take Ritual's Essential 18 because it has D3 in it, and their clinically backed Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin has several other high-quality, traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. What I love and have always loved about Ritual is that it's a female-founded company, and it's a B Corp, which means they're holding themselves accountable and not just long-term, but also to the health of people and our planet. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash momandmind. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash momandmind for 25% off. Support for today's episode comes from OneSkin, and for a limited time, my listeners get an exclusive 15% off OneSkin products using the code MIND when you check out at oneskin.co. 
Well, I've kept up my mini resolution of taking better care of my skin after consistently using one skin for several weeks and all is going well. I can't see what's going on at a cellular level, but I can tell you that my skin feels soft and healthy. But they did do some cool research that looked at before and after exposure of the OS1 peptide to skin cells, and the one skin scientist found that the peptide reverses skin's biological age. And you can even see that study by Zonari A. et al. in the NPJ Aging Journal. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, OneSkin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code MIND at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code MIND. After you purchase, they'll ask where you heard about them. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. New year, healthier skin. That's one skin. So she never said anything about it and you didn't. So there's a, there in the home, there's just a lot of kind of just deal with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. A lot of shame, no talking, mm-hmm. just kind of the way life is. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's that, that was your home. That was what you knew. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was just ongoing and unpredictable and no follow through and communication and resolving. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it was. So yeah, that's, that's a lot. I'm assuming it has some sort of impact on you mentally, emotionally at that time. But that's a lot if if that's the environment you're growing up in, and you don't know any different. um, It's you, you it's amazing what you can get used to. Yeah. Yeah. It, I knew it wasn't normal, but I also didn't know that it wasn't in this weird way. Mm-hmm. It was, it was normal for us and I assumed it wasn't normal for other people. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So it, it continued on like that. My mom never sought help. She, it, it, I didn't even know that there would be help out there. Mm. I didn't know what that would look like. And then we progressed into high school and it kind of calmed down a little bit in high school. I'm not sure what changed. It was at least less frequent. I know for sure I was kind of done living in that environment. I was waiting for 18 to come along. Oh, yeah. I told my mom, I was like, I'm out. Like, this is done. Mm-hmm. And I left and she was like, I'll come with you. I'll, you know, leave stepdad. And I thought things would be a lot different. You know, I believed her. And there was lots of different times where she was going to get, you know, sober and, and that never panned out. So I didn't have a lot of hope, but she came with me. She was sober for maybe like three weeks or so. Mm-hmm. She still had a lot of symptoms of mania and narcissism. Like she still, she still wasn't quite right. So I'm pretty sure a lot of that is trauma based, but um, she got a job one day, wanted to celebrate and started drinking again. And the suicidal ideation came back. There was no follow through, but there were some times where she would say she's going to leave and commit suicide. And yeah, I would just stay home and wait for her and she would come back and there was no communication about like (laughs) what just happened. Mm. And yeah, I was adult. So I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. Sure. Right. And I saw a therapist around that time and I never told my mom and I told the therapist I was like I can't do this but I'm afraid if I leave there will be no one there for her like she'll have a follow you know she'll she'll die by suicide and there won't be anybody there to help her or and 
she was a really great therapist, but I was really surprised because she was like, you just have to go. <laughs> and I was like, I don't think you heard me. Like <laughs> right. my, my mom's going to die. And she was like, but you have two choices, right? Like your life is with your mom and you're not doing well, or you can go live your life. And I was like, oh. so I went to my mom and I was like, I will help you, but you need to have, you need to get better, like intervention, you know, like sort of an intervention basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she was just horrible to me. She said like really awful things. Like basically her life was the way it was because of me. Mm. And I left and she would find out where I lived and she would be drunk. And eventually my therapist is like, you just have to move far away. (laughs) I was like, oh my God. So I moved to San Francisco and when I drove over the bridge, I just cry these huge tears because I felt like for the first time in my life, like I would survive, like I was going to be okay. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it was really, really amazing. And San Francisco was really expensive. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I did really well. I got a job and worked with kids who had, came from like, um, you know, violent homes with parents who were you know, they were homeless and had substance abuse or Mm -hmm. different things happening in their lives. And I loved it. I loved working with them. And eventually that work wasn't enough. So I became a child protective service worker, Mm -hmm. got a master's and did that for a while. But before I did all that, I think I lived in San Francisco for maybe, maybe four months. And then I got a call (laughs) and I knew, Mm -hmm. I knew what the call was. And, um, yeah, It was my friend who said, did your dad, I had a biological dad that I found out about him when I was 12. Mm. Um, We were never very close, but my friend was like, did your, did your dad call you? And I said, no. And I knew why they would, you know, phone him and have him try to call me. And he had not. And I was like, just, just tell me, just tell me. And they're like, your mom had died. And I got in my car and I drove all the way back to the town that my mom was in. And I just felt like if I can get there on time, I can, you know, fix everything. Mm. Like all the other times that I did it. And, and that wasn't the case. <laughs> and it was just really hard. And then I thought, well, it was really weird because, you know, grief when you're someone you know dies by suicide, you know, obviously it's complicated. And I don't think we talk enough about how, wh- how or what that looks like. And right. so I, I thought I can fix it. When that went away, I thought, well, she's just playing a trick on me. Like she would always threaten, but it wasn't real. Mm-hmm. And at any moment, you know, I'm going to get this call like, haha, you know, I just like was playing the game that she always would play. And so I went through that for a really long time. Yeah, it's, it's, it's such a trip. Mm-hmm. And then I went through a phase and this takes forever. Like I'm talking about it really fast, but it was like a really long time. Yeah, of course. And then I went through a phase where I was so relieved because mm-hmm. I didn't have to like worry about it anymore. Yeah. Of and you can't tell anybody that you're relieved because mm-hmm. that's not what our culture does with us. Right. And I remember people would ask like, oh, you know, where's your mom? And, you know, do you have a mom? And I'm like, no, she's dead. And people would get so offended because they're like, oh, no, you're supposed to say passed away. But my mom didn't pass away. Uh-huh. She died. She's been actively trying to die and now she's dead. And I remember feeling like I always had to hold space for other people. Uh, yeah. 
That's so hard. Yeah. And I had to like do it correctly for other people and hold space when I just got to this place where I was like feeling relief finally. Like I'd come to terms with her being dead and now I had to soften it for somehow. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's, it's just a, it's a trip. And then you can't, yeah. And, and it brought up all these feelings of like shame and secrecy and all those things that I felt when I was a kid where I couldn't talk about it. And you're going through this like process and mourning and you, you want to have that, wait, I forget the name of it, but you, you want people to bear witness on it. And there was no one there. Mm -hmm. And when she, when she died, I just went home. I had my brother sign paperwork. We cremated her, and that was that. So there was no, like, bearing witness for that either. Right. Um, also done kind of, like, silently or, or whatever without any anyone around you to support you in the process. Right. Exactly. Which, right, so to such a, a mirror to what you went through with her growing up. All of this was just done. You You did so much. To try and keep her alive, essentially. I mean, there's, there's just such a parallel there with all of the stuff you, you had to do for her and with her. Yeah. Right. So, uh, yeah. So did anybody know what, what was going on? I, I think I told a couple colleagues about it. I was pretty new to San Francisco, so I didn't have a community yet. And also, you know, there was shame around it. So it wasn't something, you, you know, they knew she had died. And I think a couple people asked. Two colleagues asked how or why, mm-hmm. and then it's awkward because, right. yeah, it's weird. Right. So, uh, so I mean, all of this went. Uh, this went on for years. All of the things that you dealt with, um, your need and want, rightly so, want for attachment and connection, and then it's just over. Like you didn't, you didn't get what you needed um, or wanted. Uh, right. And then obviously, like the the grieving process is very complicated after this. After all that, the grief process, I saw a therapist and kind of, you know, work through how that felt and have a place, safe place to like process that. And because of my childhood and because of, you know, everything I'd gone to I, or gone through, I didn't want to have kids because <laughs> I felt like my childhood had been so draining and so taking care of other people in my life, but I just wanted to be selfish and enjoy myself. And I met my husband and, you know, I didn't go into all my child. Well, I went into some of my childhood, but like, I was like, yeah, I just, I don't want to have kids. I want to explore the world. I want to, you know, work my career and all that good stuff. And he shared the same ideas. And so, you know, we got married and we went to India and China and Japan and all these other crazy places. And then he, somewhere in our marriage, he's like, I'm grieving fatherhood. <laughs> like, what? Yeah, I was like, uh, but we talked about this. Um, mm-hmm. And we saw a therapist and we decided to go see an OB who, yeah, at that time, I think I was like 39. And she told me, you know, you probably are not going to be able to get pregnant without, you know, interventions and stuff. So you don't need to be on and have an IUD or anything because it's just going to be really challenging. And yeah, (laughs) and I was like, a lot to to say. Um, Yeah, I was really, really happy because I was like, my body, my mind, we're all on board. This is awesome. You know, the stars are lined up. And my husband, of course, was really, really sad. And 
he's like, you're not going to do like, you know, IV, IVF. And I was like, oh no, you know, this is so sad for us. <laughs> you know, but meanwhile, I'm like, this is, this is great news. <laughs> and I was like, that's true. That's just really too bad. <laughs> and the next month they got pregnant. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I didn't think like the doctor had betrayed me or did something wrong. I just felt like my body betrayed me. Mm. And I felt so bad. And it was a really rough pregnancy, you know, like morning sickness and heartburn and, you know, almost being 40 and the extra doctor visits. But, you know, the typical pregnancy stuff. But when I gave birth to my son and as soon as I put him on my stomach... And I had an epidural, so I was shaking, and I didn't realize that that was something that happened. Mm-hmm. I remember everybody in the room being super jazzed, and I was like, I don't know this kid. I'm going to drop him. I'm not going to be a good mom, and we'll never touch. Like, I cannot touch to anybody. And I was just, and I was like, everybody's going to know. He's not going to touch to me. And it was just like this. Now I recognize it, it as like obsessive thoughts, but, you know, obviously at the time I didn't. And it would not end. Yeah, it was awful. Oh, and right away, this is like your first, your first step into a motherhood where, you know, not just pregnancy, but baby's here. Yeah. It, yeah. And I remember my husband, you know, like we were back in the room and he was holding him. I looked over and he was holding him and he was so in love. And I was like, shit, mm-hmm. that's not me. <laughs> They're already attached and mm-hmm. that's not how I feel at all. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to have to fake it. And my son had a fever, so they took him to the NICU. And I instantly thought like, oh my God, it's because I took all the babies away from the court order when I was a CPS worker. And oh, shoot. This, yeah, because it's karma and I'm a bad person. And yeah, it was, yeah. And they're going to take my kid away. And somehow they know that this this isn't okay. Yeah. <laughs> Did it feel like really high? In- I mean, looking back on it now, does it did it feel like really high anxiety? How it, would you describe what it felt like? It did, yeah. It felt like almost like paranoia, where I was like, like everybody would know, but I had to hide it. Like, oh, okay. like everybody was going to know this, yeah. and everybody knew that I did these horrible things to children, even though I was court ordered to do it because you know kids weren't safe and mm-hmm. the baby the babies were going into the NICU because they were substance. Produced and had to to save their lives and Mm -hmm. but in my mind it was like yeah like almost like a psychosis now that I say it out loud but um yeah and then I mean I remember you know so he was in the NICU and I think I woke up one night in the NICU and my milk came in and you know your boobs are just huge Mm -hmm. and that felt like going through puberty all over that body shaming and and I remember going to the nurses and being like, what's happening? <laughs> and what do I do? Mm-hmm. And they were just like, well, your, your breast milk came in and you just feed your baby. And I was like, this is too much milk for him. And like, that's, that's not like, that's, that's, you know, that's not a realistic answer. And, and I didn't know my body and I felt like I was going through puberty again. That brought up childhood stuff. And, and yeah. And I took him home. He, he was only there for a week, but I took him home and I felt like he, whenever I put him down and he would cry, I was like, oh, you know, he knows that I don't want to hold him or that I mm-hmm. can't, you know, that I just want to be like away from him for a minute and mm-hmm. he's never going to attach to me. And mm-hmm. I don't, it was just in, in nonstop and I couldn't sleep at night. I wasn't eating. Yeah. 
and I, I, I weighed like 135 ish and I went down to like 115, 10. Mm-hmm. And I knew, I knew something was wrong. So I went back to my OB and I was like, something's wrong. Like I don't feel okay. And I also felt like I couldn't go into detail why I didn't, you know, the thoughts that mm-hmm. I was having. Cause mm-hmm. I felt like as a ex CPS worker that they would take my baby away. Yeah. Oh. So, but she, she told me like, you're not my patient no more. You know, you need to go to your general doctor who just ran a bunch of blood tests on me and told me I was fine. And I'm like, I weigh a lot less. <laughs> you know, Like this is yeah. not normal. Like something's wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they're like, Oh, you know, you're, you're, you know, long as you don't go under like 105, you're okay. And I'm like, what? <laughs> okay. Right. So they're just looking at numbers on a scale, but not the quality of your life. How you're yeah. feeling about it. So I was like, Oh my God, this is, this is not okay. Um, and then I was like, well, maybe it's at that time. I, I think I had my LCSW, like I had been studying and passed and I was like, maybe it's postpartum. So I see a therapist who, you know, sold herself as um, specializing in postpartum and I saw her and she was like, well, do you ever envision throwing your baby out the window? And I was like, no. And she's like, then it's not postpartum. <laughs> and she's like, they yeah. Oh no. Yeah. And she's like, uh. babies cry and mommies get frustrated when they cry. And I was just like, oh my God. I was like, well, what the hell is wrong with me? And so I left. You know, she didn't feel like I needed any more sessions. And I was good. like, good. Okay. I'm glad you left. I left and I was like, okay. And then I started reading all these books and none of them felt, you know, perinatal books or postpartum books and none of them reflected what I was feeling. Mm hmm. And then I found your podcast, ironically. Oh. Yeah. And it was the one with you and Bertie. Uh-huh. And I don't even know why it was that one. But like, and I remember you guys were talking about how like not every therapist is specialized that say they're specialized. And I was like, oh, so maybe she doesn't know. Yeah. Maybe I do have it. And I think you or Bertie said something about like, you know, a lot of times when moms become moms, their trauma comes back and being a mom, you're the need for your own mom is really like powerful. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh my God, that this all attachment stuff is coming up for me. Yeah. And I just started crying oh. and I was like, this is what's happening to me. Oh gosh. I'm so glad to have been part of the discovery of this for you, but you're, yeah, you're right. Um, this episode is supported by factor eating better is better with ready to eat factor meals. And ready to eat means pop it in the microwave for two minutes and done. I mix in a few of these meals into my rotation for the days that we're on the run or that I don't want to make anything. I chose the high protein and calorie smart options, one of which is the mushroom chicken thighs and wild rice with garlic roasted green beans. This is restaurant quality and so tasty. I can adjust how many meals I get in my order as much or as little as I need every week. Plus, I can pause or reschedule my deliveries anytime, which comes in really handy for our busy schedule. Head to factormeals.com slash momandmind50 and use code momandmind50 to get 50% off. That's code momandmind50 at factormeals.com slash momandmind50 to get 50% off. This episode is supported by Hungry Root. I am a creature of habit when it comes to food, like I buy the same stuff in the store and generally make the same stuff over and over. Not really that fun. 
So in order to shake things up, I use Hungry Root. I can pick a whole meal and they send me what I need to make it, but I will also just let them choose so I don't get into my rut. And it paid off. I got the chicken shawarma non-flatbread. These are flavors that I wouldn't have thought to put together on my own, and they totally work. It was so yummy and so easy to make. And bonus, I also received for free organic roasted chicken breast that I threw into a salad for another meal. Hungry Root is my partner in healthy and yummy living. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Mom and Mind listeners 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com slash cat to get 40% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com slash cat. Don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. So the amount of relief that happens just from knowing that it's like you're not crazy, that this there's there's a reason for it. I mean, you went searching for it. And you're right, it's not specifically talked about all the time in all of the, the, the perinatal books, but oh my gosh, it is so important. All of your early right. attachment stuff is important. And if it's not showing up for you, it, you know, maybe there's, there's something else going on. It's, it's not for everybody all the time, but. Right. So, so you, you figured this out and, and then what happened? So I started finding out as much information as I could about the attachment stuff. I started looking at my mom and how like, just, just kind of re- remembering all my old therapist and looking about my, um, like just realizing that my mom's stuff was her stuff. And that was part of that generation of Mm -hmm. like my mom's getting told she wasn't worth a lot and how that attachment process affected her and how it didn't have to be my story as well. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's great healing right there. Yeah. Um, And you can let that go and not feel like it's your fault. Oh, that's such a way off. Yeah. Yeah. It was huge. And I feel like I see that a lot with my clients. Like there's Mm -hmm. like this generation and then it stops here. Mm -hmm. And then I think because I heard the, the, the podcast with you and Birdie, I wanted to become certified and I wanted to help other women and look at all the different ways women are affected. And so women aren't going to, or moms, I should say, aren't going to like three different people to get help and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. bounced around and feeling like they're, you know, like you said, they're crazy or they're alone. And yeah, I just, it's, it's frustrating. Yeah, sure. Um, So I'm glad you're specializing now because it it is, we need so many more people who really know it's not that, yeah, can't just have a kid and then help other people who've had kids. There's so many nuances to this transition in life. And it's a major life transition, just e- even without previous trauma, um, right. previous attachment issues. It's, it's, it's beautiful and, and very difficult. Yeah. So it, in all of your learning about how your, your past and your history was impacting you. Through this journey, I also feel like mama's groups and being with other moms was hugely helpful. Mm-hmm. Hearing their stories and just being with them and knowing that I wasn't alone struggling in it. Sure. Different moms had, you know, different things going on in their, their situation. Maybe they didn't get along with their mother-in-law or maybe they had a colic baby or their husbands were not helpful or, you know, whatever it may be. Like we might've came from different stances or different issues, but just knowing that we all collectively were struggling was really helpful. Sure. 
Because you never know. You can see a mom that's really like put together and looks really great and has like these little baby lunches that look, (laughs) you know, amazing. Like she's got all the time in the world. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, when she opens up, she's like, this is really hard. And you're like, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. It's it's hard for all of us, not just Mm -hmm. the mom that looks like a hot mess like me. (laughs) We're all like struggling and it just, it makes it more, um, I don't know, like we're all in the same same playing playground or playing field. Yeah, that's incredibly helpful. It's already so isolating, just the physicality of it being home alone, mostly, you know, with a kid. And you're just in your head with stuff too. Mm-hmm. So I'm really glad you found that resource is helpful for you. Yeah. And social media and all that doesn't help because they're like, oh, motherhood is, <laughs> is gorgeous and amazing. And it's like, we all have stories and it it, it is amazing and it's beautiful. And but it's also, it can also be really, really hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So you you read a ton of stuff, listened to podcasts, and and joined some moms groups. And and how did your own journey of connecting to your son? How did that play out, or how is it playing out? Yeah, mm-hmm. he he is a really a t- um, like emotional kid. Mm. So I think part of it was just kind of acknowledging he's he's just one of those kids that does need to be held all the time but it wasn't in my head mm-hmm. <laughs> I think yeah because I would see all these other kids just individually hanging out and independently doing their thing and meanwhile my kid was like I cannot be without you and I thought I was doing that mm-hmm. to him mm-hmm. blaming myself and I think I would I'm sure I would have been like that as a kid too if I was allowed to mm-hmm. So then just kind of re rewriting that story for me, saying instead of saying like I did this to my child, making him like really independent on me, saying I'm allowing my child to be the child he needs to be and I'm open to loving him and holding him and giving him what he needs. Aww, that's yeah. lovely. And I imagine healing for you too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It totally, yeah. Cause yeah, it shows me like again that I'm breaking the cycle of this generation that Mm-hmm. can be loving and supporting and he's you know he's four now and he's he's such a mama's boy and he mm-hmm. cuddles and holds me and we always have to hold hands and sometimes it's a bit much for me because I've grown up with no touch and now yeah. I'm like oh okay I have to change my ways a little bit but yeah it's it's adorable he's yeah he's just he's a sensitive kid I he's he's all about motions he's He's definitely, you know, he when he gets mad, he's like, I'm angry. Mm-hmm. And then when he's done being angry, he's like, I feel better now. And I'm like, all right, that's good. You can have your feelings. Oh. Yeah. That's fantastic. So. It's, a, it's amazing how sometimes if you're open to it and, you know, obviously in the right frame of mind to some extent, how your own healing can come through reparenting yourself through your child. It's just... Yeah phenomenal um, personal work, but it's also, like you said, generational work um, Mm -hmm. to show up in ways that you weren't shown up for. And not that you have to be a perfect parent at all. As a matter of fact, you don't have to be, but those pieces of healing where you are, are kind of realizing what you needed and can give, give it and, and ideally also hopefully get it where you need to as an adult. Right. Yeah. Really amazing healing. Yeah, Um, I agree. Yeah. So in in all of this, when did you shift from like CPS type work to working with uh, moms? 
when I had him, yeah, I just couldn't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. It was just, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. It stopped immediately. Yeah. <laughs> it was like nine day. Mm-hmm. I think it's amazing that moms can do that work, but it's, and it's definitely needed work, but it's, it's not for me. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, it's very intense and can be traumatizing in and of itself for sure. Yeah. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah so you, you started, you started down the path and now what are you doing with your career now? I have private practice. It's called womanhood counseling, you know, predominantly women I serve. And I work with mostly, not all, but like I work with quite a bit of moms, perinatal perspective. And yeah. That's fantastic. So you've, you've been through quite a lot. And um, as you know, as a, a therapist and us therapists know, like healing doesn't end. It's a, it's a continual process and we're always learning things about ourselves. I'm thinking right now of, you know, people who are listening to this in particular, women or, or birthing people who have had a traumatic early experiences like this with attachment and who may be pregnant now or are having their own children right now. What would you say to them in terms of, you know, what, what got you through? What, what do you wish you would have known? Yeah. Anything like that that you can, can offer? Yeah, I would say definitely you're not alone. There's there's always a community out there that understands what you're going through and that there's no shame. Like when people die of suicide, it, there's there's no shame. We should start ending that that stigma and it's it's complicated, it's hard, and if you as a person know somebody who's has a friend or a mom or anybody, especially now as the rate of suicide, unfortunately, is going up. It's okay to to feel awkward if someone shares that information with you, but you to hold space. You know, it's okay to own your own feelings, but to hold space for that. And oh, great! It, so you're you're talking about for for the people who are left kind of left behind, so to speak, mm-hmm. after someone has died from suicide, then that that they ideally they don't have shame, right? Right. Right. And. Yeah, and for moms who have, you know, parents or friends or someone who's, you know, in their life that experienced it, it's okay. And to know that you can, you know, you don't have to walk that journey or if it comes up for you, it's okay that there's people out there you can talk to. And while motherhood, it's hard. You don't have to do it alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and certainly, like, the conversation that we're having today is, you know, from the, the the, the daughter of someone who died by suicide's perspective. And we're not talking about like a mom who is like is pregnant or postpartum and they, they themselves are having suicidal thoughts. There's still plenty of support for those people right now out there, those moms out there who are, who are currently suffering. Your, your history of this, of dealing with the chronic suicidal behaviors uh, and attempts of your mom have this lasting impact and, you know, suicide in general does have a lasting impact on people, you know, in many, many, many ways. And it's, it's so complicated, especially with this transition into motherhood. So I'm glad you're shedding light on this for people. And I, I know there are so many listeners out there who had very, very complicated relationships with their parents and are trying to sort that out and who may or may not have parents who are alive right now, either, you know, for any number of reasons. 
natural causes or not. Uh, So for you to come and share this with us means a whole lot to me. And I know for those who are listening too. Thank you. Yeah, I, I appreciate this. Thank you, Jamie, for coming on. We really, really appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you again, Jamie, for sharing your story. I know there are a lot of people out there that can resonate with difficult childhoods and how that might have impacted their transition into parenthood. And sometimes hearing other people's stories, you can start to piece together parts of your own. So for those of you who are realizing that maybe your own childhood has impacted your transition into parenthood, please do know that there is help available. Putting together the pieces of these puzzles can be incredibly relieving. As usual, I will offer postpartum.net, Postpartum Support International, as a resource for anybody who is looking for support through pregnancy, birth, loss, or postpartum. If this is your first time joining us on the Mom and Mind podcast, please do subscribe so that you can get every episode downloaded directly to you when it comes out. I appreciate you being with us and hope that if any of these episodes resonate for you or for somebody that you know, please do share. When people know that they're not alone and that there are resources that can help them, they have more hope. Thank you so much for being with us. Until next time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please share this podcast. Together we can support moms and families so that no one has to deal with this alone. Come connect with us at momandmind.com. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.